I'm Daryl Wanja Serrano. I'm Ariana Ruiz. I'm Rene Rocha, and this is Imagining Latinos. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, so we're here at the end of our third day of our opening conference for Imagining Latinidades, and we're going to have a conversation with two of our speakers who are speaking today, Claudia and Natalia, and also uh, our opening keynote speakers. So we're going to bring back full circle uh, talking with uh, Ana Sampaio. Uh, so we want to begin by just kind of getting to know our guests a little bit better, doing some of the things that we've all done individually um, and uh, we've done with some of the other people we've interviewed of just trying to get an understanding of sort of like what brought you all into studies, into sort of, you know, Latino, Latino, Latinx studies. And, you know, certain, some of the things that I'm interested in, especially given sort of my own background and my own biography, uh, to sort of help guide you as you give us that overview, uh, are questions related to sort of like how natural you found, how natural it was for you to find yourself sort of in that intellectual space. You know, if it was something that maybe you intended to do sort of uh, as you began your, your sort of career in academia, if it was something that you sort of wandered into, sort of when in your intellectual process you wandered into, into it, and maybe sort of like how easy it is or how difficult it was to sort of um, make that commitment and make that transition. One of the things that I think is really interesting as we have these conversations is we all come from very different uh, disciplinary backgrounds. And of course, the presence of... Um, of Latino, Latino, uh, Latinx studies in these different disciplines varies widely. The institutionalization of it varies widely. And so the ability to sort of move into that space and what it means to move into that space and how it affects our relationship with the sort of more historical centers of our disciplines is something that I think is is uh, sort of really interesting. So those are some of the, sort of the, the guidelines to sort of like get us started. Um, and why don't we? Why don't I go ahead? I'm, there's, you know, I'm a political scientist by training. Anna's a political scientist by training. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, you know start off here, and then we can sort of uh, move on. Great, thank you, Renee. I appreciate that. Um, so I love this question about origin stories because I think it does tell a lot about how we develop as academics. And so for me, my origin story is really grounded in my undergraduate experience. Um, I came to the university as an undergraduate. Um, with with already a sense of questions about injustice and inequality from my own life experiences, some of which I shared on Thursday from my family's history. Um, and they were both questions about race, about ethnicity, about immigration, about gender, about displacement. Um, but I didn't necessarily have the language to put to those sensibilities about inequality. And what I found when I came to the university is that ethnic studies gave me that language. And it wasn't something that I knew I would find automatically. It was by virtue of taking classes. Um, and so in some ways it was a bit accidental. It wasn't the accident of knowing that there was injustice. It was the accident of finding ethnic studies as a discipline specifically. And then um, I was fortunate to go to a a university with a strong mission in social justice. It's actually the university I'm at now. So I came back after years in other places. And because it's a Jesuit university, it's really grounded in this idea of education of the whole person with a commitment to social justice, that is to institutional transformation in the world. And and in that context, I, I was fortunate to be mentored by really strong uh, Latina feminists, namely Alma Garcia, um, Bernice Mora, um, but also really interdisciplinary ethnic studies scholars, um, uh, Francisco Jimenez, who comes out of the humanities, Dwight Hopkins, who is this amazing uh, African-American theologian. 
um, doing just amazing work in history. Um, and that training really provided me with a context to understand Latina, Latino, Latinx studies from a really interdisciplinary, multi-method, and intersectional perspective. Um, and that's really what I walked into graduate school with, but that's not what I found in graduate school. And, and so for me, the graduate school experience was a real fundamental counter to how I came to Latina, Latino, and Latinx studies, um, which was in this very interdisciplinary, intersectional way. In graduate school in political science, I'm sure you know and you've had this experience, Renee, as well, I um, was in a department that had made a very decidedly behavioral and positivistic shift. And what that meant when I got there was I could effectively, and I was literally told this, I could study anything I wanted. It wasn't the question of what I studied, it was how I studied it. And so I could study Latinos, I could study Latinas, but I had to do so through this decidedly behavioral and um, really positivistic and very specifically quantitative lens, which meant a kind of atomized um, perspective that really quashed all of the politics out of the, the, the discipline and out of the kind of approach so for me, it became really a struggle to not only study the subject, but a question for how I would study the subject. And that that really became my life's work of trying to recover that interdisciplinary, multi-method, and intersectional perspective in the course of my own work. Yeah, that's right. Uh, thank you, Anna. How about you, Claudia? <clears throat> Thanks, Renee. So um, I guess I would also like Anna trace it back to my grad, uh, undergraduate days. And I would say it's just having not necessarily a language, but going up to the library and finding things that were Central America and being completely horrified by the absence um, and just finding banana republics, dictatorships and natural disasters and thinking, oh, my God, is this all I am? Um and so it was just this larger question um, of what am I, very invisible man in that Ellisonian sense. And so when I got to graduate school, I went for, um, I went in uh, an American studies program and um, being there was an encounter that was unusual in the sense that the quote disciplinary space unquote that made most sense to me was um the Africana space because it was so uh, marginal. And so I ended up working with a black existentialist philosopher, uh, Lewis Gordon, and uh, realizing that uh, Central America was not that different uh, in terms of how Africa gets discussed as the zone of underdevelopment. And um, that in many ways gave me, I think, a lot of uh, ways to think through race comparatively and processes of racialization and trying to productively work through the margins. Um, being in American studies, and I should say, you know, because um, I, I, I don't have any Latino studies training, and, but it's always been an interdisciplinary space and it just so happens that uh, the kinds of questions that I have uh, very much are in line with how to uh, move uh, uh, the field forward and thinking about uh, Latino studies in a rather uh, global way. Thank you. Natalia? I grew up in a multi-ethnic, multi-racial area, Echo Park. That is now the subject of my book. And so I grew up with working class whites, gays and lesbians, uh, Vietnamese refugees, Chinese nationals, Filipinos, um, mixed race families. And so and there was a way in which we, you know, all the kids 
regardless of their background, had certain experiences that were in common. Uh, we all knew, like, when the police came by, that was not good. We would scatter. <laughs> uh, we all knew um, the way in which Echo Park was seen as this urban wasteland. And then when I got to, we got to high school, I started seeing how institutions marked us differently and tracked us differently. And so I was really interested in what we had in common, but what also separated us. And then I went to UCLA and uh, I I did gender studies. And that was my way of understanding race was through gender studies. And so I took classes with um, Valerie Smith. Um, Ned Blackhawk was my TA. Uh, during summer teen, uh, Daphne Brooks, Dwight McBride, you know, so people understanding race and gender in these broad relational ways, which is the way that I understood my racialized experiences. Um, I also had the, uh, I was fortunate to uh, take classes with Sonia Sadibar Hall, and she took the mission of undergraduate teaching really seriously. So like Gloria and Zaldua came to our campus and she invited her undergrads and grads to meet with her and to go to lunch with her. Um, all these experiences were really important. And, you know, one of probably my most formative teachers was a white woman uh, who's a Marxist, Sandra Hale, in women's studies, an anthropologist. And through all of this, then uh, I was encouraged to go to grad school. And luckily there was a Mellon Ford program, a summer research exchange, which, you know, I think if you trace a lot of first gen people's experiences on how they got to academia, they, a lot of them were part of some kind of program that helped them, um, and or uh, you know, a very influential professor like Sandra Hill or like Sonia Saldivar Hall. And that's when I realized, oh, maybe I'll pick a discipline. And so it was like one of these, like, what discipline will I pick? Uh, and so I picked history because it just seemed like I could tell stories that way. And the intro series requirement was an onerous. <laughs> that was about how I came there. And luckily I came to work with George Sanchez. But I was always interested in that relational part of race because of how, how I grew up. Um, and then uh, just, you know, spaces like this, this is why, I, you know, we continue to learn. I, I really love that, uh, the way that uh, Claudia talked about that Latinx is always evolving. And so I think unless we keep up with it in this interdisciplinary way, um, we get stuck in a certain moment. So thank you for the invitation here. Yeah, no, this is great. And I think this really preempts what's the sort of second question that's written down here. So when we're talking about these origin stories, what I hear across across all of you is this very strong interest in the idea of sort of ethnic studies to begin with, and then this sort of like finding yourself in a disciplinary space and then trying to navigate a disciplinary space with this primary emphasis in, in sort of ethnic studies. And so the second question is sort of about how you continue to do that in your career, right? So the extent to which studying the type of populations you're studying, studying the, asking the questions that you need to ask in order to understand this population causes you to have sort of approaches, methodological approaches or other sort of like investigative or, or modes of inquiry, which sort of like run up against the dominant modes of inquiry in your fields, right? So like, you know, all of you sort of sort of touched on this, you know, to, to varying degrees and sort of the um, sort of talking about sort of how you navigate that. Of course, that question is a little bit different given that the, the dominant modes of inquiry vary ac- across our fields. And then what that says and about sort of the, the need for Latino um, and ethnic studies as, as an interdisciplinary space, um, you know, given what I suspect many of you are, are each of you are going to say is sort of a, a tension between the sort of 
approaches you need and, and the sort of more common dominant approaches in your fields. Um, so Anna, why don't we go ahead and start, start with you, yeah. Yeah, that's it's a great follow-up question. Um, I think about uh, how I approach this, living in this kind of interdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary life. And I have to say, on the one hand, it's mediated by my status. And that's to say, it is a much easier game to navigate now that I'm a little more senior than when I was a little bit more junior. Um, And that's in part because of the institutional constraints that we live in. And so I spent the first 10 years of my life in a political science department and in a fairly traditional political science department, which meant that I had to satisfy requirements for merit, for tenure, for promotion that were tied to that disciplinary constraint. And, um, you know, that meant publishing in academic journals that didn't necessarily welcome a multi-method approach and certainly didn't welcome this kind of um, critical analysis about race, about gender and inequality. There was just no framework in political science at the time to really... um, appreciate that in the major publishing um, houses. And so it was constantly a struggle as I was coming through the tenure process. As I achieved tenure and then moved through different institutions, it got easier every step along the way. Now, I moved from political science to a women and gender studies department at Rutgers, and then I moved to my current institution where I'm in ethnic studies, and I have a courtesy line in political science. And now, both by virtue of my physical location, um, as well as my staff, I I can be, I can afford to be driven more by the questions than by the um, genuflecting to the discipline. That is to say, I am really um, interested in this question about the change in political context for Latinos, Latinas, Latinxes in the, uh, really over the last 30 years and what that has meant, particularly for immigrants, um, but also for naturalized and natural born citizens. So looking at immigration as this kind of shifting body, both in, in a discursive form, in a, in a legal form, in an implementation form, and trying to track that has really forced me to become um, even more interdisciplinary because in some cases I'm borrowing from political science, in some cases I'm borrowing from history, in some cases I'm borrowing from comparative studies. In some cases, I'm constructing my own databases to try to answer the question. So it becomes more that I'm trying to answer the question and I have a bit more freedom to be able to do so. I'm constantly in awe of junior scholars who have the both tenacity and frankly the courage to kind of pursue these questions even when it means they're coming up against what are still these very real constraints. I know in political science, I'm sure in other disciplines as well, that cost them, that often cost them things like mentors or even fellowships or sometimes the accolades of their department. Right? Um, I, I, I think that there is a tremendous amount of courage that's happening right now as um, junior scholars have um, pushed these disciplinary boundaries even further. So. How about you, Claudia? Uh, um, I guess my method is, is what's been there all along. It's just thinking about the instability of the Latin signifier. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm in American studies. Uh, I'm uh, rather I've trained in American studies, but I work in a Roman studies department. And so a lot of that has to do for me is thinking about how these spaces of working um uh, within uh, former empires. And there's the significance of that within um, uh, Latinx uh, populations. And so uh, my concerns, I think, are getting more and more global in scope. What are the uh, 
the, the problems or the new sets of questions, for instance, that uh, migrants in Spain bring to the fore or migrants in Italy. Um, that to me has been really crucial. Um, and I think in terms of uh, other uh, questions, I would say uh, maybe the things that we should, uh, um, you know, talk about as just the scholars in general, like, you know, uh, I don't think we ever talk about writing processes and that becomes really key in terms of what our approach should be. And that's applicable to any field. Um, and, you know, uh, concerns that uh, also uh, connect with uh, junior faculty too. Natalia? So my first book, Fit to be Citizens, uh, Public Health and Race, was mainly focused on Mexicans, but it starts with a chapter on the Chinese, then the Japanese, and looking at all the ways in which, all the structural and cultural ways in which these communities fit into a racial hierarchy in LA end up uh, setting the stage for Mexicans, also the erasure of Mexicans that were already there. And when I first started, uh, my press first sent the book out some of the readers' reports said, we really need this book. Uh, we don't really have uh, very much on public health or you know, health discourses uh, and, and uh, race, and especially in terms of these communities. But can you cut out the Chinese and Japanese? It just kind of makes it a little bit messy. We want Mexicans and public health. Um, and so it was one of these things like I so understood it that way a lot because of my formation, a lot because that's what I was seeing was that, you know, there wasn't like an archive for this work. And so I can see the whole picture. And I knew that health officials, yes, they weren't offering uh, these services to Chinese and Japanese because they were coordinating, you know, making sure they were uh, contained in parts of the city. Uh, They were disciplining them, whereas Mexicans, they were trying to assimilate and whitewash their culture. And I felt it was really important to study that within this larger frame. And so luckily I did have encouragement of mentors that said, sounds good, go for it. (laughs) Um, And so rather than cutting them out, uh, I, you know, redid the book a couple times and it got, it got published. So it's interesting to me, fast forward 15 years, my editor at the same press comes to me and says, you know, racial scripts is really helpful concept. Maybe you can do an edited volume on this. And I was like, great. Uh, Cause 15 years ago, you want to be, you know, <laughs> the press wanted me to cut it out. But uh, you know, I do think it's also because it continues to evolve. And then I also want to bring up another point when you say, you know, how do you keep learning about this? And we talked about this a little bit at lunch service, uh, you know, we're often thinking about service and how do we say no? What do we say yes to? What do we, yeah. For me, I look at service as what, what is going to be a learning opportunity. And so service has been one of the ways that I stay up on the field. I was on the American quarterly board for about six years. Um, I read for the university of California press a lot. So, you know, these are these ways that we continue to learn from younger scholars uh, and as well as teaching, right? I mean, how many of us use teaching as a way to say, I've been meaning to read that book. Um, and so, you know, I know that the next time I teach, I'm going to re- teach Genevieve Carpio's Collisions at the Crossroads. I know the next time I teach, I'm going to teach uh, Lara Bearclaw's new book on chattels. I know the next time I teach, I'm going to teach Juan de Lara's book on the inland shift. So, you know, teaching shouldn't, we shouldn't see as competition and teaching and service we shouldn't see as competition with our writing, but as a way to enhance it. Yeah, great. And, you know, sort of inject some of my own perspective into this. One of the things you just said, you mentioned uh, in your discussion here, which relates back to to your talk earlier today, you said, well, there's not an archive for that. And one of the themes in your talk uh, 
was the sort of issue of doing work when, you know, maybe sort of traditional archives don't have a lot of information on. So this is the sort of like subjects or, or the individuals, you know, who, who you're trying to study. Right. And so that instantly struck a chord with me as a sort of like quantitatively trained uh, um, political scientist, right, who is uh, oftentimes trained to understand the world through, you know, source, sources of sources of data, right? And so we had um, Valerie Martinez Ebers on, on the show yesterday. Uh, she, uh, one of the, one of her many accomplishments is doing something called the Latino National Survey in uh, 2006, which was the only the second nationally representative survey of Latinos ever done in um uh, the social in political science and social sciences at all. It's actually the first one that was ever publicly released in a timely manner. And it's 2006, right? So like, you know, I got my PhD in 2006, which meant that at the time I got my PhD, there were zero of those surveys that had ever been done in a timely manner, right? And so in, in some ways, despite different disciplines, right, it's a very, very similar process of how am I going to do this type of work when the type of, uh, you know, when sort of my, my analogy to an archive uh, you know, sort of large-scale data sets on this population doesn't doesn't exist, right? And so it's really f- sort of fascinating to me how we face similar issues despite widely different fields and despite the fact that sort of the um, sort of uh, the things which we uh, are sort of being asked, the types of, of information or evidence upon which we are being asked to draw by our, our relative disciplines is so different, yet we still face, you know, uh, such similar constraints. So that's just struck me as really fascinating um, given, given your talk this morning. Um, okay. The other thing that sort of, again, many issues that we sort of want to talk about here, um, this is a little bit of a shift, but we're just sort of interested in your perspectives. And this is also great because, you know, um, um, your appointments uh, are, are in such different fields. And I'm especially interested to hear your perspective on this, on having existed within a political science department, a gender uh, studies department, and an ethnic studies department, is basically the role of of Latino, Latino, Latinx studies in higher education and its value, basically, as an independent space instead of its uh, value as sort of like a theme running across different units. Yeah, this is, um, it's actually the first week of my classes. So any of my students that may be listening are going to hear my first lecture, which is, um, I, I, you know, I, I pose the question why study typically I'm teaching Latina, Latino, Latinx politics of some sort. Um, sometimes I'm teaching a more general introductory to ethnic studies, but I think the questions are still relevant. Um, but why study this, right? Most of them are coming to classes because there is a core requirement that they're trying to fill. That's how the preponderance of them come. But there are certainly an opportunity for us to introduce them to bigger questions and to pique their interest to pursue additional studies. And for me, there are three really big reasons why you would pursue Latina, Latino, Latinx studies beyond just a requirement. One of which is the obvious question, which Val and um, Gina and Arlene yesterday addressed beautifully, which has to do with the demographic shifts, right? Is that we're living in a country that is increasingly more diverse and particularly around race and ethnicity, Latina, Latino, Latinx population constitutes the largest racial ethnic minority population in the country. And they've done so now for about two decades. Um, so if you want to understand race and ethnicity in America, you better understand 
what it is, the history of this population and their contemporary existence. Right? Um, so the shifting demographics and the literal changing face of the country begs us to be more um, intellectually and culturally competent. Right? It's one of the reasons. Two is that I think there are some of the most generative questions coming out of this discipline. Right? As I said before, it is interdisciplinary, it is intersectional, it is timely. And as my colleagues have suggested, it is also applying its own sort of methodological lens, whether that is intersectionality or a kind of Latinx lens. It is, it is introducing new research questions, new methodological, new heuristic lenses, and even asking of traditional fields, like in my case, political science, um, new questions um, that it hadn't heretofore answered and, and applying a new interpretive lens. And so it's really generative in that sense that it allows us to push dis- traditional disciplines but also create new disciplinary spaces. But the third reason, and I constantly find no shortage of examples to show to my students, is that it's a really good idea to take these classes. It's a really good idea to pursue these so you don't embarrass yourself, your family, your business, your political party into extinction. Um, you know, there is a pressing need to understand and to be responsive to these populations and to not just deride and dismiss. And whether it's a university president who decides to hold a taco party in the most denigrating form as has happened at universities, or it's a president of a political party that decides to run an entire campaign targeting this population, um, both are, uh, you know, unsustainable, uh, uh, whether it's a gaffe or decided, it, they're unsustainable gestures. And, and really, this kind of discipline allows us to move beyond that. So. Great. I love that. Thank you. Claudia? Um, I would say in addition to what Anna just said, um, in, you know, it, it's, just, it's also a space that allows us to think about uh, geographically how a lot of these regions are being remapped by these migrations. I'm thinking a lot about the southeast in particular, coming from North Carolina. Um, and um, though Latino, Latina, Latinx studies is there, of course, for um, Latino students who um, are directly impacted by a lot of these um, concerns and questions. I also want to emphasize that I think it should be an opening for all undergraduates or graduate students to come and take these courses to understand the landscape of the United States and the Americas. Um, And that is key for me coming from a Roman studies department is just seeing how a lot of students are um, that are not Latin American or Latino speaking uh, Spanish, it's also um, bears a responsibility of what their relationship is to a language that is racialized, that is proletarianized, and ha- making sure that they see its ethical, their ethical relationship to it as well. So um, the kinds of questions that Latino studies programs, in my case, it's a program, um, I would say it's, it's, it's unique. Um, and it's also there as a resource for all um, students. Yeah, no, I love that idea. You're talking about the importance of understanding it in this sort of like in these in these different geographic spaces, right? So we're here in Iowa City, right, which is a place which, like historically, you know, as you go back, it, um, had a has had a smaller, not, not an absent, but a smaller Latino population, right? And it's had a population which has grown pretty dramatically uh, over the past few decades. And in fact, sort of like an origin of Latino studies at this university, um, if you go back about um, 15 or so years, it was actually a movement led by some staff, right? With the student population is, is smaller at that point in time, the undergraduate student population and the faculty population is, of course, sort of 
non-existent and uh, going over to the provost and, and presenting him with some of these, these, these emerging demographic shifts and sort of like trying to convince the administration to sort of get ahead of the curve that they needed to build the institutional capacity at Iowa in order to deal with the fact that in, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, they're going to have an undergraduate student population, which was increasingly more diverse. And they needed the faculty here now to be able to um, help interact and absorb that population. And also that the undergraduates who weren't from that population were going to be interacting, like your guys are saying, and is improving issues of sort of cultural competency. We're going to be interacting in this increasingly diverse um, state, right? And that they needed some capacity uh, to help understand and, and navigate that, right? So, and it, you know, we're, we're here in Iowa City talking about that. You're talking about it in other sort of non-traditional destinations in, in, in North Carolina, right? And uh, so I think that that's sort of... Uh, a call for expanding uh, the, the study, again, not just, in, you know, outside of the institutions which have historically sort of been the, the places it's, it's housed, you know, not all of those places have been in, in sort of traditionally uh, uh, states with large Latino populations, but, but many of them have been. So, yeah, that's great. How about you, Natalia? I'll, I'll give you three, I like that, three talking points. I'm going to give you three <laughs> stories. So the first one in terms of the demographic shifts, one of my favorite examples of that is uh, I taught in a teacher credential program before, uh, while I was finishing up my dissertation before I went to UC San Diego. And it was uh, like a multicultural pedagogy, something like that. And it was required. And, you know, in Los Angeles, you have like 75, 80 languages taught in LA Unified. But one of the students, what he was going to do his program there, but he was going to go back to where uh, his hometown in Appleton, Wisconsin. And so his thing was, interesting, I'm going to teach in Appleton, Wisconsin, don't need to know this. And I remember coming in one day with the front page of the New York Times about immigration to Appleton, Wisconsin in the industry. I was like, ta-da, we all need to know. We're all coming for you. (laughs) The browning of America means you have to learn this. Um, The other thing is I do use newspaper articles a lot or the debates or... um, you know, music videos in my class. So, uh, you know, thinking about the, you know, presidential debates and coming, I taught uh, Latino studies to undergrads in the last semester. And, you know, looking at the debates and it's so easy to say that it's, you know, Trump's, you know, uh, evil, but he didn't create this discourse, right? And what are the, what are the ways in which even when the Democrat candidates are trying to, redeem something that they demonize another community or make it invisible. And so we're able to connect those data points. Also, again, you know, thinking about race relationally, um, it was during that semester that 21 Savage was arrested and deported. And what did it mean to think about immigration through a sort of a black uh, African diaspora through a black lens? And so all these kinds of things, um, you know, help us understand why we need lots of data points to connect and we can connect them differently and tell a larger story if we do. And then the third thing I would say is um, we, you know, uh, getting back to your kind of method, and this gets at your methodology, methodology question. If you know what's going on in Latino studies, you know why certain certain problems may not be obvious to other people. So I remember, you know, all the discourse on Obamacare and, you know, why, uh, once it passed, why weren't Latinos signing up? But if you're reading the paper, you see that at the same time, there's all the newspaper articles on Latinos not signing up for Obamacare alongside 
all the anti-immigration discourse and the ways that, you know, you, you can picture his Latinos being scared to sign up for this. So I wrote this article about it uh, and I, I submitted it to an interdisciplinary journal. And, you know, as has happened to all of us who do interdisciplinary work, you get like four readers reports and three people are like, this is genius. And one person's like, what's wrong with her? <laughs> then she used methodology. Where's her data set? And I remember uh, sending it to John McKeown and Gonzalez because he also works on public health. I'm like, they say I need a data set. What? He goes, what? Like regression analysis? Like neither of us know what that means, right? So, um, <laughs> so speaking our language. So I, you know, I went back, I reframed it in terms of, you know, uh, different, uh, you know, all these different things. And in the meantime, as I'm doing this, Kaiser comes out with a study showing Latinos were afraid to sign up for healthcare. And uh, I send that in and they're like, yeah, but can you get access to the data? <laughs> and in the meantime, that's when all the legis- uh, you know, all the moves to all the people, all the people had signed up for DACA status that the government had all the information and now they wanted to use that information. So even if they were legal, they wanted to use it to, you know, put their families on notice so, you know, through all these kinds of, of, of things that you realize we may not always have the empirica data, but we need Latino studies to ask the questions. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, one thing that sort of strikes me, and I think it is, uh, goes back to some of our, our earlier questions, uh, the idea of having the space to have, you know, sort of the room to ask these questions and I think there's a lot of themes emerging. We're talking about, we, when, we, when we started this conversation, we're talking about, right, well, what's the importance here for helping basically, you know, non-Latino students, for, for helping them develop sort of cultural competencies. And one theme I'm getting here is what's the importance of having this space in order to be able to help our colleagues in the discipline have a better understanding of sort of the questions that they're dealing with in, in, in their disciplines. And so it's a, to sort of like politicize um, this and help it make a, uh, I don't know if it helps to make more sense, but it helps to make it more sense to me. Um, like when you're studying this population, uh, oftentimes what you'll find is that traditional, basically explanations of say political behavior fall apart when you're studying this population. Now, if you have an explanation of political behavior and it falls apart when studying this population, what it means is you don't have an explanation of political behavior, right? It means you have an explanation of white political behavior, which you've assumed is a population of political behavior, broadly speaking, right? And so by having the space to, uh, to ask questions that apply to this population, you actually sort of produce a better set of knowledge. You sort of get at, you, you sort of, uh, keep others from sort of believing that the way that they understand the world uh, is sort of universally true instead of actually affected by the types of populations which they are studying, which are exclusive of of uh, the Latino community. So, uh, you know, I, so it's funny how like we're talking, how that, that theme is true in terms of like, like, let's help, you know, non-Latino undergraduates or let's help our, our white colleagues understand their sort of studies a little bit better by asking questions um, uh, within the auspice of Latino studies. Can I just say something? Because yeah, I think yeah, yeah. that's really one of the, for me, one of the contemporary contributions about Latino, Latina, Latinx studies. Uh, you know, just like any discipline, um, this is a field that has gone through lots of different iterations, right? Not just in nomenclature, but in terms of methodology, in terms of contributions, you know, there is this genesis that is in part a challenge to the uh, various academic disciplines in the way they let out or left out the population or they had misconstrued the population. But there is also this genesis 
Genesis that was about recovering the stories of the population. So very much grounded in history. But but I think now we've got some really interesting work. Um, uh, Mary Hawksworth in, in Women and Gender Studies, actually, in political science, had done this work on racializing and gendering um, studies in political science. And I found this so incredibly helpful, along with work by uh, colleague um, uh, uh, Natalia Andromir Hancock. Um, taking what are otherwise seemingly neutral things, like for me, budget bills or legislative language, and demonstrating the way that these are in fact not universal, not, as you would say, applicable to all populations in the same fashion, but that they are in fact coded and racialized and they are gendered. And and it takes a particular lens and it takes a particular skill and it takes a particular training to be able to draw that Mm -hmm. out. And Mm -hmm. I think it's it's really um, helpful. It's really instructive to our colleagues in what are sort of canonical disciplines to be able to demonstrate how the things that they thought were universal, uh, replicatable uh, are in fact not. They are in fact grounded and specific and manifest in a particular positionality that is not universal, you know, and I see, so I think that's part of the trans uh, transition and the evolution of this discipline itself. Great. One last question. So we're we're sort of go around. Um, and so the question is again, it's a little bit of a, a, a little bit of a shift here. Is um, what message? And I think this is sort of a, a, a nice way to, to sort of conclude. Is what message would you give to a, a, a listener here, a, a, a Latino, Latino, a Latinx listener, who sort of feels like they don't belong, right? Given your experiences, given where you were, where you've come to now, right, at a place where, you know, you're. You're invited to to come, you know, speak across the country. Obviously, as as evident by your presence here, right? Given all, given that set of experiences, what would you say to somebody again, just feeling that, and maybe feeling that uh, in a sort of like, um, not necessarily, you know, um, in in, uh, in maybe like a, in a, in a way that they can't even sort of articulate. I would say first and foremost, we are you. <laughs> <laughs> That is exactly the experience every single one of us in this room has had. Um, I see that in my undergraduates. I see myself in my undergraduates every single day, that kind of anxiety, that pain, that isolation, that confusion, that self-doubt. I see it, and that's because I was there. Um, I would say that part of the reason I am so drawn continually to uh, Latina, Latino, Latinx studies is because it's a home, and I say that in the largest sense of the word, it is an intellectual home. I have colleagues that inspire me every single day, including folks here today in this this you know amazing academic space. Um, so it's an intellectual and academic project. It is a political project. That is, it's not just about being satisfied with the status quo. It's about trying to create a more democratic, equal, just society. Um, and it's a personal project. It's about validating where you are. It's about seeing your life's experience as having value in the university. It's about centering your subjectivity and giving that breath and life and allowing that to then inform your academic career. And so it is very much a home. We often use this term family to describe Latino, Latino, Latinx studies. And and really it's because there is a sense of care and a a sense of um, comfortableness that is generated from that. Like any family, it's not without tension. You know, that's happened. That happens in every family. But that care is what ultimately endures. And so I would say, you know, uh, come check out a Latino studies department because I think you'll find that kind of uh, attention and care. 
Thanks, Claudia. Um, I would say just carve your own space. Make sure you go talk to professors uh, during office hours, get to know them. These are the people who will also help you write letters of recommendation, help you in the process of professionalization. Um, you have to claim that space and um, yeah, uh, make sure that you go talk to your professors and oftentimes they'll be a lot more helpful than you realize. And um, you find you have to find those spaces for surviving and thriving. Natalia? When I received my PhD in U.S. history, I was the 21st Chicana to do so. I mean, it was at that point where we could actually count. And it was, you know, I mean, that that's also why I showed that LA Times cover because, I mean, we were so invisible and it was such a big deal to you know, even start talking about this. And part of the reason I know I'm 21 is er, the, the number 21 because Dina Gonzalez kept a list and so she actually would write out the list and we would go to, you know, uh, National, Association, National Association of Chicano, Chicano Studies, which evolved that year, <laughs> that first year that I went, uh, it used to be Chicano Studies and it was Chicano, Chicano Studies. And we would have lunch together, like number seven is here, has <laughs> number 14, you know, and as many of us as we could would go, you know, those who weren't sick or had passed or, you know, had suffered from the profession in some terrible way. Uh, so, you know, look, for, don't look for that broader world for validation. Uh, you don't need them. Look for your community, the people who prop you up. There's a lot of haters out there. Uh, you know, even in, you know, I think of the field in that way, but even my graduate program, one of the reasons I went to graduate school at the University of Michigan was, yes, to study with these great professors, but I like the graduate student population. I went in with Adrian Burgos, uh, the year after us, Pablo Mitchell came, uh, soon after Frank Garitti came. In front of me uh, was Nancy Raquel Mirabal, uh, also, uh, you know, John McKiernan Gonzalez, and everybody helped each other. Like, we didn't need a huge community. We just needed that one person that showed us if we go to Detroit together, we can buy tortillas. And let me give you the books that I have so that you don't have to buy them all. And actually let's meet before class and talk about things because you're going to be rated on your performance. And so you want to go in with some talking points. And so, you know, really finding out what community is there. And then the last thing is community in sort of uh, intellectual formation space, right? So read broadly. You don't know who you're going to be in conversation with. And Latino studies is a, is a field with different methodologies, different vocabularies. And so I, I, what I often see with graduate students is they're under so much pressure, and I totally understand this, to, you know, to teach and to get their writing done. And um, now they're, you know, get a publication that they sometimes don't go to talks or, to, or go talk to the professors because they're busy and they're under a lot of stress. But if you want to be able to talk to as many people as you can, go to people whose talks just seem interesting. You know, so I had, I talked to a graduate student uh, this, this week and I asked her, what have you read this semester? It's her first year, like third week, or, yeah, third week of classes. I said, what have you read this year? She doesn't think of herself as a historian at all. I said, what have you read this year that, or this semester that you're excited about? And she said, Rosina Lozana's uh, An American Language. It's a history of the Spanish language in the U.S. And she said, I didn't know you could use archives to tell these kinds of stories. It sparkled, right? So find your joy with, with people, with books, with ideas. Just find your joy. 
Great. I can't think of a more perfect note to end on than, than that. Um, thank you for uh, everyone here for listening. And as always, um, uh, please follow us on Twitter at Imagining Lat. Email us at podcast at imagininglatinidatis.com. Share our podcast, rate our podcast. If you're going to give us five stars, rate our podcast. And uh, <laughs> thanks for listening and uh, check the show notes for uh, links to all, some of the materials that we've been discussing today. Thank you.